t-shirt i just wanted to say oh yeah yeah thanks <laughs> is that vintage no <laughs> i bought it on the internet it's it's the first police album i ever bought though i remember the uh that when that ghost of the machine came out like at, at rose records on ogden avenue the display they had a fancy i mean all you know they had the the fake like digital clock it was the their faces but a, uh, just a box with a light in it you know so it looked like a glowing clock i remember going to beautiful day to buy vinyl. I think it's the first place I ever bought vinyl. And I remember holding like Outlandis Yamor and then Zenyatta Mondata, which had similar covers, but they were different colors. Like, right. the, like the filter on the image was different. And it was just, to me, it just looked so great. I don't know how to describe it, but it just looked so desirable to buy that. I don't know why. The marketing department did a good job. The designers, whatever. A&M, A&M Records. You should send them a... You know, I'm sure they, they're still around. Whoever was, they're still in the same office, whoever did the, the packaging. Herb Alpert and yeah. Chuck Mangione, are they still yeah. around? Sure. What was it? Dear Herb and Chuck. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who it was, though. Moss, right? Somebody named Moss. What are you talking about? Wasn't uh, A&M? Oh, that wasn't Albert and Mangione? It's Herb Alpert, no. but it's not. <laughs> it's not Chuck Mangione. Yeah, I didn't even notice that you said Chuck Mangione, yeah. <laughs> I thought because they were both trumpet players. Oh yeah, and that's why the logo was a trumpet. <laughs> well, it's heard Herb Albert, but no, it's it's his manager or whatever his name was, right? Jerry Moss. Jerry Moss. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Chuck Mangione. What a bummer. For years, I thought Chuck Mangione had signed Soul Asylum. <laughs> oh well, what are you gonna do? I can't be right about everything on this show. That's why Elmo Records also. Did you, so when they sold A&M, Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss started Almo Records. So they sold it and started another record label? What's the logic behind that? <laughs> if you get out, why would you get right back in? It's like G&L Guitars. Yeah. It's kind of like that. There were three, right? So it was, yeah, George and Leo, the two guys from Fender. I can't remember who George was, but he was the other guy, like the other guy who helped found Fender. So they started GNL and then what? Oh, Music Man, right? Music Man was Music before Man. GNL, right? So it was yeah. Fender, then they sold the head and then they started Music Man. Was that right? And then they sold so. Music Man and then they started GNL. <laughs> yeah. I've got a Music Man 210 that I bought for 100 bucks in 1992 and a 1977 Gibson SG that I bought for 100 bucks. I bought them as a pair. 200 bucks for an SG and a Music Man. Amazing. I remember that amp, yeah. That's probably the best music deal I've ever gotten. <laughs> Still have them, too. Still play them. Guys, how are you today? Rick, you've got the sun in your eyes. You look... Oh, uh, he's locked up. I think he's locked up. Oh. Or he's just dozed off. No, he's not locked up. Oh, no. he's, he's playing. He's playing around. That was good. I call him Rainbow Face. Look at that rainbow. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it was kind of like... Uh, the cover of Synchronicity, but it's not really. Who had the stripes across their eyes? That was Synchronicity just had the stripes, but who, like, yeah, that's more like Adam and the Ants. You know, I never thought of it that way that, you know, how we were saying Outlandis Diamor, Zenyatta Mondada, Zenyatta Mondada? Regatta de Blanc. Had the two kind of similar images with a different filter. And then Synchronicity had the three images in a row, each with its own filter. But then Zenyatta Mondada broke the mold there. That was just a pyramid. But they're in there. They're still they still have their pictures on the cover. Yeah. How many more is that all the police albums there ever were? Yeah, I think so. There's just four? Oh well we yeah, of course, Ghost of the Machine. That's a pretty good five album run. Do you What's like the police? 
Rick, you go first. Do you like the police? <laughs> I do. I was pretty obsessed with the police for a while, like more recently. The simplicity really? of it. Yeah, the minimalism. I, I find it fascinating, actually. Have you heard the uh, rehearsal tape? There's a rehearsal tape. I think it's the Synchronicity Tour. There's like, there's this place in the middle of nowhere where uh, bands set up their, you know, they, they build the stage, you know, the big stadium set up and then they rehearse there. I know there was a whole thing about David Byrne rehearsing there, but like there's there's a tape of the police rehearsing and Sting's got a, he's got a sore throat, but it's like, it's pretty amazing. Just their rehearsal tape. This <laughs> is kind of like, oh, these guys are really good. Like really good musicians. <laughs> it's really frightening. They were potentially the three best musicians at their instruments i mean i guess there's yeah. maybe better bass players than sting but not ones that could sing as well as he could and sing in different rhythms from what he was playing on bass. yes yeah. that's what's insane about it is you start listening and it's like he's singing and playing at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's totally insane and then Stuart copeland is my favorite drummer of all time there's no other drummer that plays that weird style of mishmash eastern and western rhythms there's an amazing video of him like in like 1980 or anyone talking about reggae and stuff he's just talking about drums but like you can see how hard he hits <laughs> it's right. like it's like he just starts <laughs> it's like oh my yeah, god like, it's on the two <laughs> it's just like blowing out the microphone on the camera exactly it's amazing i remember watching like a 15 minute documentary on them getting ready for the last tour they did uh, which i got the pleasure of seeing the only time i ever saw the police and they're like in the middle of a song they're just like well one time there was a pretty big fuck up and you could you could see Stuart copeland was going for something and didn't get there and then sting called him out on it and Stuart was like what no that he's like that will make the cover of modern fucking drummer magazine <laughs> but then there'd be other times where you they sting would stop him and you'd be like, what? I didn't hear anything. What did, What happened? I mean, there's only so many ways you guys can play these songs. And, and I'm not quite getting what you're rehearsing, why you're rehearsing, where there are issues. But I don't know. They're perfectionists, I guess. I just watched the uh, Paul McCartney, Rick Rubin. Paul McCartney tells the same stories he's been telling for 50 years uh, documentary series. But there's a moment where uh, Paul McCartney says, well, it was a really free band and anybody could try anything or make any suggestion. And of course, I would always butt in and say something and everyone would hate me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that moment in the uh, Genesis documentary where you realize that the keyboard, what's his name? The keyboard player is, is an awful Tony person. Banks. Yeah, Tony Banks is just like, oh, Wow, he's a bad person. He's he's just a curmudgeon. Yeah, he's why everyone quit. It wasn't like that, but it was just like, oh, okay, yeah. That was like the one thing out of six hours or however long it is, three hours, where it was like a glimpse into reality. Well, that's why you watched it, for that <laughs> nugget, because you probably right. knew all the rest. You probably heard all those stories in between songs and his live shows. And, and like Rick Rubin, they're like listening to Back in the USSR, and, and Rick Rubin's talking about the drums, and then it's like Paul McCartney, well, I played those. And he was like, I didn't know that. And it's like, yeah, I, I think I was showing Ringo how he should play the drums on the song. And he said, well, you should play it. And then I think Paul McCartney says, well, no, he said, well, you should play it. And, <laughs> and what they leave out is that Ringo quit the band for a week. That's, that's the reason why Paul McCartney plays drums on back in the USSR is because Ringo quit. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, but they don't mention that. That doesn't come up. It's interesting to listen to, though, because that, that must have been the point where Paul McCartney started practicing the drums, because that song, you can hear there are multiple like snare drums and stuff. Like They're fixing it. It's like he tried to play the song, and it's not quite right. And you can hear how it's kind of cobbled together, but he, do, he definitely gets better. Like He starts practicing. That's probably exactly when Paul McCartney started really practicing the drums. Wow. I need to listen closer to you back in the USSR. Yeah. It's a, uh, huh. that's, that's the Paul McCartney drum beat. You know, you can hear it on, I'm trying to think, oh, uh, Ballad of John and Yoko, Paul McCartney plays drums on that too. There are a couple songs where you can tell it's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> oh, Paul's playing drums on this. <laughs> if I, I ever, you know, did that in any of the bands I was in, it would have been just Mellow Yellow. That's whatever I do, the intro to, when I, I'm behind a drum set, that's all I can play is the hi-hat. That, that's my beat. I That's my beat. 
I did. I invented that. <laughs> Rick, have you ever gotten behind the kit and said, "This is how you do it"? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I can't. Yeah, no, I can't play. I can't play, but I can. I can. I have said, play something like this. You can't play, but you can tell a drummer how to play. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you played drums. I have played drums in a band. It was, it was a nightmare, but I have. <laughs> no, it's hard. I have respect for drummers, but I also, you know, have opinions about what, <laughs> what would work and what wouldn't. We have a guitarist in our band who's a Berkeley trained sort of jazz guitarist. He's phenomenal. I think the best. No offense, guys, but best guitarist I've ever met. <laughs> and he is so hard on drummers. He's like, they don't need to know theory. He's like, I, he's like, I've got to know what note, whether the notes in key, you know, what chords I'm playing, what harmonizes. Like the drummer, he's just got to hit this shit, and if he, you know, if he stops or drops, it's like all he's got to do is he's got one note. He's got one note to play, and he doesn't know how to play it. There's always a rift between guitarists and drummers. That's just the way it is. I love drummers. Drums are my favorite instrument. Maybe you're not really a guitarist, then. Maybe you're a drummer. Well, we all know I'm not really a guitarist. We didn't have to bring it up, Rick. Welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, a podcast hosted by the Myers-Briggs types of John Mayer, David Byrne, and Prince. I'm Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. Which, uh... <laughs> See, do this, then I don't know who I am. I'm supposed to know. You know, I'm usually antagonistic with that, but I decided since, you know, I do love you, love you both, I'd be nicer to you guys on the show today, so I picked somebody I thought you'd like to be associated with. I don't understand why you said John Mayer, then. Why would you say I'm John Mayer? <laughs> no, I actually picked John Mayer to poke fun at me, so I thought you might like that, and then I associated you with somebody who I thought you greatly admired, and then I picked... Prince for Jim because Jim's magic and Prince is magic. <laughs> I thought about saying Doug Henning, but they, uh... <laughs> oh, I saw an early Penn and Teller where they they just yeah rip into Doug Henning. It's really funny. That was part of their routine apparently. Is they'd make fun of David Copperfield and Doug Henning. Rick and I saw Doug Henning before he was super famous at a pretty small place, I think, somewhere yeah. in the Chicago land area yeah. in the seventies. Was he the the rainbow hippie yeah. guy? Yeah, oh, why magician. would you make fun of him? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he the Mr. Rogers of magic? <laughs> <laughs> Kinda, I guess. That's the thing, is it all changed, you know? It got, it, like, it went both directions. It went the David Copperfield direction and went the Penn and Teller direction. And so Doug Henning doesn't fit either of those directions. Like, either you're, like, super intense and pretentious or you're making fun of the intention, intense and pretentious magicians, but you can't be this, you know, happy hippie guy. <laughs> There's nowhere for you. Magic got analytical and edgy, just like comedy. You know, like magicians <laughs> yeah. probably started talking about magic like comedians talk about comedy. Yeah. I guess we, we talk about music that way too. So. One crossover I remember, do you remember the guy, I wish I could remember his name, but he, he blew bubbles and he was a hippie, had long hair and a mustache. He looked kind of like Doug Henning, but he smoked also because he would blow smoke into the bubble constructions he'd make. Yeah. He yeah. seemed like edgy, but an edgy hippie. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. I feel like somebody came to our school and did that, like smoked <laughs> a cigarette and did like bubbles with cigarette smoke. Like the week after the yo-yo guy, the <laughs> Duncan yo-yo guy. Did he ever come? Yeah. He, did the Duncan yo-yo guy come to your school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah you're, and Mike sure. the Bike, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mike the Bike. I might be a little too old for... The, that was like a talking bike, right? Yeah. yeah. Like a police like a police thing, was it? Not... Yeah. The policeman was in the hallway in the back yeah. of the auditorium. And, and you could kind of see him out the door, too. <laughs> talking into a walkie-talkie. The, yeah. The bike and was the talking bike and flashing. Was, it was that, Yeah. It was amazing. It was magical. It was magical. Could have been in this movie, I think, that we, we watched... Speaking of, there is a bike, there was, and, it, there there was a and the radio. Bike. There's a radio that flashes and talks, and it's exactly yeah. like that. It, Why it didn't the bike talk? Is my yeah. question. <laughs> Go a little farther, man. Before we get into talking about our film, we did. We do have a hot seat question. I want to run by you guys, and then then we'll get into the film. But yeah, we do definitely need to talk about that bike. I got some notes on it, and we need to talk about your use of the word "we." What did I say? You're the one who started out saying "we." We have a hot seat question, but. <laughs> 
again. We do. As we say every week, as we say every week, as you say every week, as I say every week, you say, you have a hot seat question. We don't have a hot seat question. You have a hot seat question. Well, it's for all of us, except uh, I'm just going to ask you two to answer it. So today's hot seat question comes from listener Dan. So we actually got a very nice note on our uh, social media page. Uh, from a listener named Dan. I'm not going to use his last name because he didn't say that I could. And so I want to thank you, Dan, for your note. And he had an interesting question. He asked, are any of you guys musicians? So I'll ask each of you individually. We'll start with Rick. Are you a musician? Would you call yourself a musician? I've decided I am. I, I think it's taken 40 years. Is that about right? 30 or 40 years? But I think I am. I think I've decided that's who I am. A musician. I always say I am, but I guess I never really believe it. I always feel like it's just something I say. <laughs> but if, it, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I really am. That's a, yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that. I haven't reached the point Rick has reached. I'm still lying to people, I guess. <laughs> well, the difference is, so I have that same feeling, I think, as you do, Jim. But what I'm saying is, is that I've kind of given up in saying, you know, it's just kind of like, I guess that's what I am, you know, and, and like saying I'm not or saying I could, you know, if I was better or if I was more this or that, more skilled, <laughs> then I could call myself that. And it's more kind of like lowering the bar in a way and saying, okay, yeah, sure, I'm a musician. Well, then it gets into a big pretentious explanation as to why you're not a musician, right? So you might as well just succumb to it. I do not consider myself a musician. I've only been playing, I've been only been trying to play an instrument for 20 years now, not 40 years. So you've got twice as many years on me, and I still don't understand it or understand how to play it. So I well, wouldn't consider myself a musician. That's what I'm talking about is I feel like I'm still trying and I'm still trying to understand. And so that's, that's the thing is it's just kind of like... That never goes away. But I think there's a line you cross where you know enough about music that you could call yourself a musician. I don't know. I mean, you were talking about how Sting, you know, stopped the band and heard a problem, and you didn't hear a problem. And so Sting is trying to fix things, even though it may be perfect and it may sound perfect to everyone else. So I think, I, I think it's a common problem. <laughs> or it's, it's part of it. You know, it's like you're not, you never cross a line. The line is always moving. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. So you think Sting wouldn't consider himself a musician? He might consider himself a musician, but he may not be happy. And so you find out that like what, Yo-Yo Ma practices how many hours a day? He doesn't practice 10 hours a day anymore, but he practices like four hours a day. Probably five minutes. You just got to touch the <laughs> instrument every day. Yeah. No, I, I seem to remember he's, he's just constantly practicing still and still trying to fix things and get things right, you know, or keep things. Well, that's the thing is I guess at some point you're trying to keep things at a level. That's a line that'll happen as you get older. It's driving him crazy. He's Mr. Cello. Once he slips, that's it. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> exactly. You can't make one mistake anymore. The alpha cello goes down. <laughs> yeah. You know, the nice thing about starting to play guitar when you're 30 years old is that you never get worse. You only get better. <laughs> My routine is I play every day so that I can memorize, like I play songs that we're going to play, and I just try and get those songs into my memory so that, A, if I'm super stressed out or anxiety-ridden on stage, you know, it'll be, uh, you know, intuitive to don't know what to do. Or B, I might actually get bored with knowing the song so well that I might start doing something musical beyond the memorization of the structure. Like setting your guitar on fire and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My $100 SG. <laughs> but I, I always say that you lose like, and this is not just performing, like, you know, getting up in front of and talking to people is you lose about 50% of your intelligence or your ability or your brain, you know, it's like, you just have to assume that you're going to be about half as good as you are when you're alone working on something. So yeah, having that practice really helps because you get super stupid when you, at least I do, I get super stupid when I'm in front of people. And so I need that extra work beforehand just to have that baseline like you're talking about. <laughs> It's like, hopefully my body will know what to do when my brain isn't working. <laughs> right. And for me, I actually like 
I experience the dumb mistakes in practice. I'm like, oh boy, I'm glad I know about that now. Know that I'd be inclined to do that now because if I did that on stage, I'd lose my shit. Jim, you're on the hook to do our synopsis today because you picked this film, our second to last film. Can you tell us about Paper House? Well, let's see. Paper House, it's from 1988. It's a uh, movie I saw around that time on video, probably the year after 89, I saw and rented on videotape. And it's about a girl who gets ill, is bedridden, starts drawing and realizes her drawings. She starts dreaming whatever she draws before she falls asleep. And she starts thinking that she can kind of control, well, she's affecting the real world through her drawings. And she uh, draws this boy in this house. And it turns out her doctor that's taking care of her while she's bedridden has this other patient who's a boy who's much more gravely ill than she is. She's never met him in real life, but she's convinced it's the same boy and she's affecting his life. And through her drawings and her dreams, basically she's processing, going through all these things and yeah, her father is away in business all the time. So there's like this, she feels abandoned by her father. And so she's got this kind of hostility towards him. It's like how she processes the idea of death, trying to, I think, just figure out what's happening with this, this other patient and who she doesn't really know, but thinks she knows or she, and trying to fathom mortality. And it's great. It's a great movie. It's like uh, stuck with me. I, I definitely, I hadn't seen it in years I don't know if I even thought about it the first time you brought up the idea for this podcast, but maybe it was halfway through when we started recording these, whatever, two years ago, it kind of came back to me. I remember it was like right at this time, late eighties, we were renting tons of movies and it was like, oh yeah, this is a great movie for this. And it just disappeared. It was never, I don't think it was very successful. Again, it was on Siskel Niebert. I found the review online, you know, the, from the show. So I'm sure that's where I heard about it. I don't think it did very well just kind of disappeared and the actress the main the the girl is that's her the only movie she was really good and she never did another movie i love it (laughs) you know i didn't understand this movie until you just explained it i was trying to do my whole thing of figuring out what it was about and you know i was waiting to hear rick's lecture on how i'm always trying to make things more hollywood or figure them out but i I think it goes back to rick's point which is this film was simply about a girl who's having fevered dreams that are triggered by the things that she's drawing and she's also using those dreams to process what's going on with her in the real world like the whole thing about the concept of unreliable or inconsistent filial relationships her dad you know traveling but then she also mentions that she doesn't like it when her dad drinks that he becomes a different person Mm-hmm. So in her dream, that became this heightened, like, stranger yeah. who also was kind of not normally angry. Yeah, that's, yeah, I never even made that connection because, yeah, it's at the beginning, the drinking thing, and it's like, oh, he stopped drinking. But, yeah, that's totally, you're right. I never thought about that. It's like he kind of becomes this monster, violent, even though they never say that he ever really became violent to her, you know, it's not, but that's true. Yeah, it's totally true. But even at that age, if your dad came home drunk, he'd be different and that would be yeah. scary. Like even right. if he was like benevolent, but just drunk, it's like, oh, what is, this is not how dad acts. You know, why is he acting this way? That was probably disconcerting. Right. And you know, any child that would complain about their parent uh, traveling to make a living is just a fucked child in the head. They better not ever <laughs> complain about that. I think it was John Lovitz said that his dad, when he was a kid, would sometimes leave the house and say bye. And then he'd come back in, his hair would be messed up, and it was the crazy uncle. And he'd come back into the house as a completely different person or as his uncle, his, his brother, basically, totally made up and would hang out with the family for a while. And then he would leave the house. Then he'd come back into the house and he'd be his normal self. And they'd say, your brother was just here. And he'd go, oh, I can't believe I missed him again. <laughs> it's wow. like, wow, that's an amazing, that, that explains a huge amount. I think it was John Lovitz. It was, it was fascinating. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I have a persona with my kids, the dad who went too far. And that's <laughs> that's where my kids allow me to say and do anything I want 
and they just laugh their asses off. You know, it's like the most inappropriate within boundaries, obviously, but like, you know, sort of mocking a lot of the adults that I grew up around as a kid who were, had some questionable comments and behaviors. My kids just laugh there. But I like, and whereas if I were to walk in the room and normally say some of those things, my daughter would be on my ass. Right. Hardcore. But the dad that went too far. The character. He gets a pass. Yeah, the character, he gets a pass. Yeah. I always try and be rational. You know, I'm pretty rational. I, think. I don't buy into all the kind of supernatural aspect of it or spiritual aspect of it, but it definitely goes beyond. It's like she knows things about this boy that the doctor is shocked. You know, it's like, oh, she knows all these details. So how does that happen? So you can't justify it. It's not like just, oh, she's having a just weird dreams, but she knows everything, all this stuff about the other patient. The movie takes that next step where it's like, something else is happening well does she though or is it this sort of coincidence that starts to feed itself right because that was like when you were giving me the explanation that was the thing i was thinking about is this is supposed to be supernatural and that's guy came into this conversation but when you were explaining it about how like her fever dreams are reflecting off of things that happened to her just before she goes to bed mm-hmm. she kind of hits on there was a boy in my dream right and because they were the her and her friend were talking about snogging boys just before she got sick. And so boy, you know, boys were kind of on her mind. And then this doctor comes in who's being, who has this heavy weight on her clearly because she has a sick patient. It happens to be a boy. And then that starts, and she starts to inquire about the boy. And then that kind of steamrolls from there. Mm -hmm. So it could be supernatural, could be coincidental, or she could just be really picking up on the doctor's signals and kind of knowing where things are going. It's like a con artist things, like reading people and <laughs> or just, yeah, fortune tellers. So it's, it could be a subconscious thing. But, well, she says he has blue eyes, which that's easy. You know, that could be a guess. And, or just, but the bike, she has a, or no, he has a, yeah, he has a blue bike and that he always looks at. Or, and that's what the doctor's like. How do you know all this? And, blue is a color that symbolizes boys, you know. So it's not a stretch to that a boy yeah. would get a blue bike. Yeah, boy, Chris, I I, I would have thought you would have yeah been more into the supernatural side or the yeah you're you're being. I'm trying to show that I've grown. Look, I've grown on this podcast. I'm not trying to agitate Rick with the opening. I'm trying to be more practical about my interpretations of these films. I thought that was at least the message was is that she was actually making a direct connection. They were sharing. There was some middle world where they were communicating these two children that were that were ill and asleep they were in a shared dream world the uh, Roger Ebert review <laughs> I read was like he he made a connection he was like he was thinking it was like the doctor is somehow a conduit between hmm. oh the two kids and somehow they have some kind of psychological link through the doctor or something interesting well that I'm, I guess I'm arguing that that link is empathy that that girl is just picking up on the doctor's vibes and sort of empathizing with it and guessing correctly. And the doctor wanted to share that burden with somebody, so she just imparted something supernatural onto the girl as opposed to just the doctor being forlorn and very easy to read because she was so troubled by the situation. I don't Mm -hmm. know. It was a great movie. I'd never heard of it. Ebert loved it. Siskel didn't. He liked it to a point, and then he said it got too explicit, which I don't really understand that comment and the the show it was like he when it, it starts getting crazy the uh, the dreams with the cracks opening when the fire like her drawing catches on fire in the real world and her father's dragging her away and then the fiery fissures open up in the ground and all that that's when he said he lost it or was like had an, <laughs> had enough but yeah, he 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 sort of. It seemed like he sort of liked it too. He thought the filmmaker was talented, and that's what I realized watching it. Is so the, the director, you know, had been a music video director, right? Had directed some Frankie goes to Hollywood videos and and other stuff, and and I started, you know, thinking about that generation. And so he's a little earlier than, you know, people like David Fincher and Spike Jones. Tarsum Singh, I was thinking about, who's the guy who did Losing My Religion and did a couple of really interesting movies. Because music video, right, was all about imagery and a lot of dreamlike stuff in music videos, right? You'd have these strange early 80s music videos. And this is one of the early, I think, examples where instead of it being the, um, you know, Michael Mann, they talk about that kind of music video MTV influence on like 
the TV show Miami Vice and then Michael Mann's, you know, directing is it's more of that. I think of that visual language as more like the Ridley Scott, the guys who were doing advertising. Right. And they were making these really kind of intense, commercial, clean looking images for advertising. And then they went into film. Whereas the music video people were a little later, and even though maybe there's fast cutting and stuff like that, the more impressionistic or surrealistic elements that you'd have in early 80s or just a lot of music videos during the 80s. Having someone move into narrative filmmaking, this was an obvious, you know, where you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, now that I think about it, there are not a lot of movies in the 80s that were this sort of surreal, you know, when you do think about a Spike Jones movie, like later, you know, like what, 10 or 15 years later, right? Being John Malkovich or uh, uh, Michelle Gondry, is that how you say it? I was, gonna, I was about to say, who's the yeah. French guy that does that stuff? Yeah, Michelle Gondry. yes. Yeah. So those, those movies that were happening in the late 90s, early 2000s that came from music video, you know, had all that stuff and they were more popular. Like David Fincher, I, you know, is always an example of a music video person who became a director, but he seems more like those, more like a Ridley Scott or a Michael Mann than a, you know, Spike Jones, right? That's what I, I liked about this was, but I also realized, oh, this is, <laughs> you know, Nobody wanted narrative films, right? That were as crazy as like a Bonnie. Uh, what's what's the total eclipse of the total heart, eclipse right? of the heart? That's what I was thinking of. It reminded right, right. me a lot of that video. Yeah, <laughs> where it's like, oh, this is somebody who's talented visually and everything like that, right? But can they do a narrative? Maybe not. But do you need to do a narrative? And it's like, well, yeah, commercial filmmaking. <laughs> In the 80s and 90s and still, there's not a lot of wiggle room for doing anything that's visually arresting unless it, you know, serves some kind of superhero plot. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue. But that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest we share taco memories discuss taco topics and put tacos to the test we check the latest stories in taco news and no taco is off the table on taco the town if you love tacos like i do you're gonna love taco the town available on itunes stitcher podbean and google play that's taco the town Most of the film was ADR'd, and mm. by the end of the film, the question of why was this entire film ADR'd was, my answer was, well, it, it really brings a surreal element to the film where two children in a clearly windy field with everything blowing around and their dialogue is clear as day with absolutely no... It doesn't sound like it was recorded in a room. It does sound like it was recorded outside the dialogue, but not in a wind, in a windy environment. There's like lots of stuff like that throughout the whole film. Even like outside of the dreams, the mother is like 80 yard clearly in certain scenes. I've made a lot of music videos and the beauty of making a music video from a filmmaker standpoint is you don't have to mic anything. You can just film and then you lay the audio in later. While I thought it might be a choice to make the film seem more surreal, it may have also been like, yeah, I've never really shot anything where we mic'd the actors, you know, so we'll just do that in post. The one thing I read, the mother, Glenn Headley, she's American, and according to IMDb, they decided she should be English. She, They filmed it all with her, her American accent, and... Oh. Supposedly, I can't believe this, but it was like days before it was released. I don't believe it was two, you know days, but whatever. Supposedly, she came in and redid all her parts with an English accent, which was a surprise. Is, is really good. I mean, now that after knowing that, it, it's I can kind of tell, but she's really good at it. Usually, you know, most Americans can't do an English accent. She was like a real 
theater. She was in Chicago. She was at like Steppenwolf and Goodman Theater and stuff. It's probably our, my parents probably saw her a bunch, but she was married to John Malkovich. She's from the East Coast, but she was in the Chicago theater scene. So she's a really good actress, you know, it was a good theater actress. So it's totally believable that she, she, she does a great English accent. It was like a surprise when I heard that. Yeah. I thought she was phenomenal. I thought any awkwardness in her vocal performance was due to the ADR. I, did, I didn't think her accent was an issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. Was, was she, when she was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, didn't she play a character that turned? Like, I know the two guys were trying to dupe her because they thought she was some high-class person, but then doesn't she flip on them? Isn't she sort of conning them? Sounds right. It's been a long time. And I just, I remember being so impressed with her performance in that film, and then this one, she was she was phenomenal. She died in 2017 Yeah, at the age of 62 of a pulmonary embolism. This movie, which is totally about death, is like the <laughs> it's kid, like, it's the like boy, cursed. the yeah. boy died a few years later. The actor who plays the boy in this died when he was 20. The boy who died in the film actually yeah. died in real life? Like a few years later. It was like something... Uh, Bad malaria shot or something? Yeah, it said... Uh, yeah, the film he was in sounds really interesting. It's like an animated film. It was like took years to make, and then he died before it came out. I, I, Taxandria, I haven't watched it yet, but it's up yeah. on YouTube. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. And Ben Cross from Chariots of Fire, he's dead also. <laughs> <laughs> he made it, yeah. He, he survived the curse for several decades. What he was... He was 72, but, I, but yeah, that was a surprise when I saw, I was like, I'd forgotten. And I felt like he, I had seen him in movies recently, but I, I looked through his career and it was like, wow, no, I, I'm, maybe I saw him once or twice. I'm trying to think in a couple things, but it was like pretty much Chariots of Fire was his big thing. And it's like, wow, what happened? Well, I guess, yeah, it's the curse of Paper House. You know, we've just watched two films back to back where the child actor quit the business after... The, that one film performance uh, and both survived to this day. Of course, one of these children was not a great, not, not a very good performance. The other child put on, I thought, a phenomenal performance. Earlier in the podcast, you were saying, are you a musician? And it's like, I think Charlotte Burke, I think she could call safely call herself an uh, actor. Whereas, what's his face? From Gloria. I've already forgotten his name. I don't Phil? think he could... Phil. Scott Adams? Was that his uh, name? Something like that. He wouldn't be yeah. comfortable calling himself that. Or Jake Lloyd, for that matter. Although I think he does <laughs> consider himself an actor. Here we are just picking on children. Yeah. I, I need to lay off the kids. Sorry, kids. There was a scene in this film, I think she was with her friend, climbing into like two tunnels. There was like two British-looking tunnels. Uh, early on the film, they climb through some little door in the tunnels. Oh, and then she she climbs into it and then like passes out and her friend has to come find her. A railway state, abandoned railway station. It reminded me a lot of the scene in The Wall. I have to go back and watch The Wall. I think that it might even be the same tunnels. Either that or just, you know, Great Britain has you know those everywhere. Thing about, you know, him doing music, the director doing music videos, it was like, I wouldn't have been surprised if he had some connection with Pink Floyd or it was totally like Pink Floyd aesthetic 80s, you know. <laughs> I guess it was just general 80s British zeitgeist the father blinded and the the hill with the hammer and all that stuff it just was like oh this could have been a pink lloyd video too <laughs> just yeah i never thought of that it just totally screamed later yeah like the wall you yeah, look at those train tunnels it really looks like a scene straight out of uh, there was a scene in the wall where he kind of does the same climbs into the tunnels hmm. and it, i could swear it was like the same set well i feel like alan parker's another director who's like those you know ridley scott though that that era that kind of clear aesthetic arresting imagery but not maybe that's the problem with the wall the movie itself is like it's it, it wasn't directed by a music video director right it was directed by you know someone with a really good visual sense yeah it was more like a musical director right because alan parker did uh, bugsy malone i forgot about that so wow. yeah alan parker's like a little earlier i'm really interested in this the, like the music video and how it influenced you know the way these people made films you said there was a problem with the wall <laughs> That's, that's a perfect film. <laughs> I, I need to. I don't know if I need to watch it again. I, I feel like I, I don't. don't. I watched do it. it once. Don't do it. Yeah, I, I don't even like listening to the record anymore. It's like maybe maybe if I could go back in time, maybe when I uh, my dementia gets me to the point where I'm like a 13 year old again, I can watch The Wall and I can listen to it. My mom gave me The Wall on Christmas, and I had a horrible fever 
which this actually this film kind of brought back. <laughs> Isn't that a Pink Floyd song? Yeah, it is. It's in the wall. And <laughs> my family was all out having Christmas, and I put the wall cassette in my cassette player. It was like a combo cassette record player thing, you know, with a radio on the front. I listened to the wall, and it really resonated. And that wasn't just because, I like, the fever that I had... And that music works so well together. In fact, my wife calls Pink Floyd and, and Radiohead fever dream music. That's why she hates mm. it. She's like, it just reminds me of having a fever dream. But I got obsessed with The Wall, and I listened to it over and over and over again. I watched the movie a bunch of times. I was even in a band where we covered The Wall end-to-end in 40 minutes, which I just recently thought about playing it again sometime soon. I do remember there was a point in my life where like, I thought The Wall could do no wrong, and then there was a day where I watched it, and I was like, holy shit, this is, I can't, this is unwatchable. It's terrible. I can't even listen to it anymore. I either just burn out on it or I just grew out of it or I'm not sure what it was, but it was like a light switch. Whereas I could listen to our parody of The Wall, or I don't know if you'd call it a parody, but our, our very 40-minute cover of a two-hour record, I can listen to that and enjoy it still, but going oh, back yeah. to the original material, it's just difficult. I can speak from personal experience of watching you guys play that live. I've seen it live, performed live. It was amazing. It's the comedy. It's comedy element to it too. It's it's a it's all the it's amazing. Just musical jokes like what you cut to like Duran Duran, like Hungry Hungry Like the Wolf. There's a, some kind of cut between. It was White Wing Dove to Hungry Like the Wolf to Eye of the Tiger to yeah. Another Brick in the Wall. Perfectly, they're all the same song. You're sitting there talking about the police and how. What, or good musicians they are, but you guys were amazing, and it was like... Well, I didn't play any instruments in that band, so... Your voice. You know what's interesting about The Wall is, uh, maybe we can talk about this on the Intruder podcast, but <laughs> they uh, they did the basic tracks on a 24-track tape, and then they did a stereo mixdown onto a second 24-track tape, and then they did all their overdubs on the second 24-track tape, and then Bob Ezrin hoped and crossed his fingers that they'd be able to synchronize two years later the two 24-track tapes and have the original pass. Because when you do analog tape recording, like, for instance, um, Exile on Main Street, the reason why Exile on Main Street sounds like it does is because they ran the tape so many times, like it was almost transparent. Like they were just <laughs> rolling over and over again and doing overdubs and stuff like that. And so you'd lose quality, you know, and then they did all their overdubs on a separate tape. And then there was a, a magical moment. Bob Ezrin, the producer, was like, okay, let's we're going to sync these two... 24 track tapes together and hopefully everything still works and it did <laughs> they were able to get the high quality sound you know amazingly enough that's how we recorded our version of the wall we recorded every we recorded four <laughs> tracks bounced that down to two and then added more tracks on top of that so <laughs> it was it was a mt2x yamaha mt2x wow. Rick, maybe you would know this. You know the echo on um, "Way Down Inside." You need me. That uh, that Zeppelin song. Oh. Allegedly, allegedly, that's bleed or something that shouldn't be there. Oh but, yeah, yeah. But bled through on it. It's just the tape resting against the previous layer. Yeah. Yeah, and the magnetic, it can, yeah, you can get these things. We, the, the, one of our records has that. The guy who recorded it, he kind of amplified it then. It, like, started showing up on, like, the beginning of a drum part, and then he kind of faked it more, amplified it with a, a delay, but it was really interesting. There's also channel bleed. I've, I've got a tape plug-in that does that, <laughs> where it, you put it across all, like, so if you got 16 tracks, the bass will bleed into, if you have, like, bass on track 10, and then you have vocals on track 11, then a little bit of bass will start showing up on track 11. You can start tweaking and turning up so that you get this weird bleed that happens with analog tape machines. I thought this film had some horrific elements to it. I think the soundtrack was what contributed highly to that. They're always kind of zapping you with stings synth yeah. stings and, and um, guitar, some metal, metal guitar. Yeah, washes and stuff, and it was really unsettling. And supposedly it was kind of cruel. It's like kind of in the the tradition of like uh, Hitchcock. Supposedly they didn't tell the actress, the father, when he breaks through the glass with the hammer. Supposedly they didn't tell her. And so she was really freaked out. And he starts smashing through the window and starts screaming. It was like that was real. And she was not happy with the director <laughs> for him doing that. But it was like psycho with the water the shower scene you know kind of pumping ice cold water in the murder scene in psycho 
I just watched Psycho the other day. Did you watch it over 24 hours? Remember seeing that? We, we saw in London. That was a great exhibit. The British Film Institute. There was, yeah, once in the 90s sometime we were in London and there was a big, they always have, it's a museum, a film museum. And so they had exhibits. And uh, one of the things was just a room showing Psycho over 24 hours. So it was really slow. <laughs> Amazing. And, shown on a wall so you could walk in and there were people sitting there i don't know how long they'd been sitting there but and and so there were a series <laughs> of exhibits and it was amazing like the uh what's what there were directors it? yeah they yeah had, peter they had, uh, what's his name right the numbers death yeah. by numbers guy and then the perfect part was the terry gilliam exhibit it had a wall up and it said to be completed or something like that he hadn't gotten it <laughs> yeah. done in time yeah. it yeah. wasn't ready yet when we got there when the exhibition opened yeah. Wait, was that the joke of the exhibit? I don't know if it was, was the it joke. <laughs> I, I don't think it was. I think it was honestly like he got behind schedule or something. So it's th it was an amazing series of exhibits. Yeah, the 24-hour cycle. Yeah. What's his name? What's the guy? Well, Peter, i got to remember his name. from Like Drowning by Numbers and... Greenway? Yeah, Greenway. That was the best one. His, his exhibit was this big gallery just full of uh, vitrines, whatever, little glass cases like a hundred, of course, just like his movies, just obsess, obsessively collect little collections of thing, objects. But then around the outside, the edges, the walls of the gallery were six glass cases with people sitting in them. There were six people, one in each case. Actors. Yeah, actors. And it was like every hour or two hours, they changed. There was a chart on the wall and it was like, it was just this collection. It was like this hour are these people. It was like people who have starred in, not starred, but yeah, yeah. it was actor. Were they all actors? Okay, yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah, think okay. so. It was like, like he did a lot of instruction stuff. So he like gave a casting director instructions or casting okay. person, right? And said, I want people who've appeared in a Stanley Kubrick movie. And so right. I want six of those or something. And so, yeah, every day he had, he just had lists of things he wanted. And then the casting director would go out and get these actors and then they'd go sit in the boxes and and the the little vitrines were also that it was like he said oh i want an old english countryside house like a place setting for that and so then he'd hire a set designer to do that he was doing movie stuff but to make the movie exhibits it was really fascinating yeah the people were just sitting there staring at you you just walk up and they're just just sitting on chairs up about Three feet off the ground, they're up on it, you know, up in a glass case up above above you. So they're kind of looking down at you know and just looking at you. Yeah. And there's it's, it's a big gallery, just a big room in a museum, and you're walking around, and there's six people in glass cases just kind of staring at you. It was an acting gig for them; they got paid. <laughs> but instead of them being in a movie and being an extra in a movie for one day, they were an extra in this museum exhibit. I think it was one of the best exhibits I saw. Well, was there nudity in Psycho? Could you finally see in the shower scene if there was any or not? There's not. There's no nudity in Psycho. And we actually, I think we walked in, when we walked through the exhibit, it was right around the shower scene, I think. Yeah. It was after, I think it was the drain or something. But yeah. it's so slow. It was just going forever. Yeah, it was like, but I think that's when we walked through. Yeah, they had it, like couches or cushions set up so you could sit there for hours and just watch it if you wanted. I've been watching Fear Street. I just watched the first Fear Street the Netflix horror series recommended by my brother-in-law. I would have turned it off halfway through it had he not said stick with it. Is it gory? Well, nah, I mean... No, don't. Well, no. You, know, you know those bread slicers that um, they used to have at, at the bakery? <laughs> <laughs> when we were kids, you know, Kirschbaum's had that bread slicer? Yeah, imagine a person's head going through one of those. Is that Great. considered gory? And then yeah, coming no. out like sliced Just, bread? Those aren't robust enough. There's no way that would... That's not realistic. That's, yeah, it's very unrealistic. <laughs> you couldn't cut a skull with one, I agree. No. That, that's, that's where... That's what your skull stretch. is for. To prevent stuff like that from happening. Right. That's what's great about this movie. This movie isn't really a horror movie, or it's been kind of classed as a horror movie. Because the director, he directed Candyman, yeah. which I've seen, which is a bloody horror movie. But I didn't really like that movie that much. But I'd read that book before. This, I think it was a short story. I never read much horror I didn't like Stephen King or anything, but I remember around this time, probably just after Paper House in the late 80s, early 90s, reading a bit of Clive Barker books. They were good. I liked them. That surprised me because I hated Candyman. I mean, I thought it was really bad. Yeah, it seems like his movies after this, they're all real horror, gory, most of his movies. For that time, I think that's the only pathway you have 
for yeah. you know this kind of surrealist dreamlike filmmaking right if you're that type of visual filmmaker there's not much you can do in commercial film at that time there wasn't much you could do you had to do horror what i remember about candyman is i feel like candyman was the first movie that had that shot that you see it was in every 90s movie it was flying over the city i get candyman's in chicago right yeah flying over the city the cameras completely parallel to the streets and you just see that kind of it's like a helicopter shot but it's just kind of like that smooth shot going through a nighttime city parallel to the streets right and showing the grid of the city and i feel like that was the first time i saw that shot and then every movie had that shot unless it was in the crow before that i can't remember if the crow had that shot also and now every movie has that shot every homemade movie has that shot because everybody's got a drone drone yeah yeah. that shot in every one of their films i'm i'm guilty of it we have drone shots all over our film there really is a symmetrical beauty to chicago like when you take off from midway i like to watch out the window of the plane and watch those streets because they're all grid except there's like two streets that crisscross yeah it's just beautiful to watch like that perfect grid system and then that disruption of that street that just sort of angles through it's amazing (laughs) It's a pretty strong argument that a horrific fire, you know, every city needs a horrific fire at some point to completely level it to get it back onto a nice sort of grid. I mean, that's the reason why Chicago looks like that is because it basically got wiped off the face of the earth and they were able to restart it. It didn't work with London because it happened years, <laughs> s- several centuries before and they because it was such a nightmare of all the real estate. Basically, yeah, London is a copy of the medieval city because it wiped out the whole center of the city, but, oh, we got to put it back just the way it was. Because it's just too big of a nightmare to try and sort every... It's like, okay, this is my land. I was here. This is my stuff. And so the street was here. Everyone knew, remembered the streets, or or they're still intact. And it's like, so all the medieval streets survived the fire. And the New York Times had like an interactive article about Chicago and and how the river, you know, and the lake, that interaction is starting to get really unreliable, you know, where the river reversing and the lake levels going up and down and and I'd forgotten that they had uh, raised up Chicago too they just started going block by block and raised up mm-hmm. the whole city it's like why lower wacker drive is there it's why it flooded too right because there were the coal cars all below the ground and then those coal tunnels and then somebody punched a hole in one and then the whole city started <laughs> to flood and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from but yeah, it's also swamp. It was built on a swamp. It was kind of scary because I, I, I always think of Chicago as being kind of safe compared to the coasts because mm-hmm. in, in the next 20 years, and this this was the whole thing about how, no, it's not safe because the lake is raising up and lowering in these kind of extreme ups and downs, which causes huge problems. And then when you have massive rains and if the river fills up, you can't put it into the lake. Well, we'll be dead by the time that happens. So <laughs> no, that's not. That, they, yeah, they weren't saying that. They're saying that's already. It's already pretty bad. Should this film be lost? Right, lost like never seen again. Yeah. No, no, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's, I'm super, super, I'm, you know, I'm going to go, you know, write a book about music video directors and kind of the different characteristics and the sort of success and failures of them when they tried to transition into this. And I think this is a great example of that. A lot of what we're talking about where it's, it's so visually arresting. I don't think a lot of, is it Western filmmaking? I mean, even, even British filmmaking, right? Like American and British films aren't as surreal unless they're horror films, right? So if you think about Hammer films and you know, all those great, crazy 60s British films, they're kind of horror and thriller. And so it's just realizing how little fantasy and surrealism and dreamlike imagery, how, how little of that is, is in mainstream filmmaking. I think it shouldn't be lost. I think it should be found, too. I would I would gladly recommend this. Jim, if you were in a grocery store, would you turn to somebody and say, have you seen Paper House? You should see it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd almost forgotten about this movie after seeing it, whatever, 30-some years ago, and I was glad I remembered, but it'd been a long time. I was happy <laughs> that I remembered it, and it was like, it definitely stood out from that time. This was kind of the end when we, we started talking about this podcast, and it was like, I was going to do The Hidden, I think is the original choice, which I like too, and but is much more a B, kind of schlocky, fun, crazy horror movie. But it's about the same time, and, and then like The Hit... There are all these movies that just disappeared and this was fell into that category. It's just like, wow, this was definitely should be seen. Will you watch it again? Should it be rewound? Oh, yeah. 
I, <laughs> I could easily watch it. I think there's more I could get out of it, especially now after talking about it. I'm going to watch it in my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to draw a little picture of a movie theater with this movie playing on it, and then when I fall asleep, I'll be in the little movie theater watching it. I didn't sleep too well the night I watched this movie, and I had a dream. We have two dogs, one we got at the beginning of the global event and one that we got in the middle of the global event, so they're both somewhat puppies. But I've been home every day, which I've never been with any pet we've ever had, so I really have bonded with these two animals. Well, you alluded to it earlier, like the Ben Cross character. You identified with, in this movie, you were gone from these dogs' lives, lives or you would have been. I guess you weren't. Would have been, yeah. For the other, the, the, your previous pets. My criticism of children who cry about their parents not being around, you know, I've got two retorts. I'll save one of them because it's a little too dark, but, but the other one is daddy's got to make a living, so at least he comes home. You know, I guess is the nice way to put it. And we also have this fireman who in his off duty is doing work in our yard. So I had a dream that my apartment was on fire and that we had left the dogs up in the apartment and they weren't going to get them. So I went and got this a fireman that I knew and I said, can you take me up in our apartment to get our dogs out? The firemen who are working the fire won't do it. He said, I'll take you up there, but they're probably dead. And that's where I woke <laughs> up. <laughs> wow. Like, dark dream. <laughs> But I woke up and then had to go, you know, I had to go nuzzle up with them, unlike I did with my children as they grew up. <laughs> because I was too busy getting drunk and working away from home, like all good fathers do. I've got a perfect, like, double feature. If you're going to watch Paper House, you should watch Jonathan Miller did a version of Alice in Wonderland for BBC TV in 1966 which I first saw about 15 years ago, whatever, rented. Black and white TV, just amazing, beautifully shot, done in the summer of 1966. And I think there was some kind of, maybe some sort of strike. And so there were a lot of actors available. I don't know if it was something with the theater. I don't think it was an actor strike, but it was something with the theater. So there are all these amazing British theater actors in this television drama of Alice in Wonderland. And it's done very straight and it's very true to the book. Nobody's dressed up in animal costumes. It's just people <laughs> and they're just mm -hmm. characters and which is kind of what the book is about. They're about real people and it's not animals and crazy creatures. Ravi Shankar does the soundtrack. This amazing snapshot of Britain, you know, in 1966, it's like Ravi Shankar's, you know, probably, I don't know, if this is before if he's already hanging out with the Beatles or it's kind of adds this weird surrealist, you know, this kind of trippy edge to it, which it makes more sense than you realize because I watched it with Jonathan Miller did a uh, commentary too. And he was talking about how it made sense to him to use Ravi Shankar because this is a story about a Victorian child and British empire and... I don't know if she would have heard Indian music, but it's like an integral part of Victorian England is India and yeah. Ravi Shankar, like traditional Indian music. So it just is this bizarre mix. It totally makes sense. It's like this Victorian hazy dream world with Indian music. And it's incredible. And it's like all these great actors. John Gielgud is in it and Peter Cook and Peter Sellers and just tons of people. It's not super long. Like I said, yeah, it's for the TV, so it's, I don't know, it's shorter than a, a film. It's a perfect companion piece to this movie. <laughs> it's not about death, really, I don't think. But it's a little more lighthearted, but it's it's very bizarre. And I, I think it's off-putting because it's very surreal. It's not like a Disney Alice in Wonderland movie at all. <laughs> kind of like Willy Wonka kind of has those darker, troubling elements to it yeah and this this isn't even dark definitely not like paper house or but it's just very surreal and it's definitely truer to the the book i think alice in wonderland is not good for people with anxiety like i can't even watch that <laughs> tom petty video don't come around here no more like there's just like when they start eating her like a cake and i'm just like there's something about being that out of control of something <laughs> and Alice in Wonderland, like nobody's listening to her. No, it's just constantly being like people doing the opposite of what she needs them to do and her getting further and further away from where she needs to go. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you're okay with like someone's head going through a bread slicer, but... <laughs> 
a little bit of surrealism and characters who are not listening and not doing the right thing that bothers you. That's troubling. Yeah, that's troubling. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.